Good morning. My name is Heather. The Old Testament reading today is found in Psalm 106, 47 and 48. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Dave, and the New Testament reading is found in Jude 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Stephen. Thank you for standing for our gospel reading found in John 17, 6 through 9. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept my word, your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. The Gospel of the Lord. Give us eyes, Lord, that we might see. Give us ears that we may hear. And Lord, give us hearts that would be soft to love and serve and follow you. To the glory of God, our Father, through Jesus, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're in this series called One Last Thing, which is, I've kind of made the joke each week, is really like six last things. As we've walked through these Sundays here, this is the fifth uh, um, of the series next week, as we mentioned earlier, will be a, a much shorter reflection. But our journey has been through the Gospel of John, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. It's our way of keeping company with Jesus all the way to the cross. And, you know, maybe some of you grew up observing Lent, but maybe Lent for you growing up was just all about certain weird observances, you know, don't eat meat, don't abstain from alcohol or whatever. And maybe for others of you, you're like this, you never even heard of it, it was not something you guys did or not something you're familiar with. But you know, the point is, is not so much how you observe Lent. The point is really that we can in our hearts and with our practices keep company with Jesus, join him in this journey all the way to the cross and to the empty tomb. And so sometimes it is a, a fast that you withdraw from something so that you can reflect. You're, you're reenacting death and resurrection. So there's a, there's a denial of yourself that maybe you're embracing as a way of saying, God, I'm, I'm sharing in uh, your death. But maybe for others of you, though, it's actually more of what you're focusing on, or, or if you will, feasting on. So some of you are doing the community Bible experience, you know, reading through the New Testament either alone or, or, or with a group or you're listening to the audio of it. And it's a way of kind of letting the Word of God wash over you as you prepare for Easter, for new life. But I, in either case, the goal is to keep company with Jesus, to walk with Him all the way to Easter through the cross and to the empty 
tomb. And so in this series, we've been focusing on these final conversations that Jesus has had, final conversations with his disciples and then with his father. So John 13, week one, we talked about Jesus with his disciples and he says to them, as I have loved you, love one another. And he acts this out with this radical act of humility by washing their feet. And then week two in John 14, we talked about Jesus saying, do not be troubled. And what it means to see the world differently, to see Jesus as being the way and Jesus as being the one with us through the spirit. And then John 15, we talked about Jesus saying, abide in me. I'm the source. Remain in me and you're going to bear fruit. And then last week was John 16 where Jesus says, I have overcome the world. All the evil and chaos, everything that is wrong with the world, the thing that resembles and is the picture for us of this messed up state of things spiritually and physically. Jesus is saying, I've overcome it and I've dealt with the very root of it, the heart of it, human sin. Here we are now in John 17, and, and it's Jesus praying. And it's really interesting, because when you think about this final conversation with his father before the cross, what is Jesus going to say? What does Jesus talk about when he's near his death? What does Jesus pray about when he knows his time on earth is coming to a close? It makes me think of what we think about at the end of things, maybe the end of your day. Long drive home, stuck in traffic, you know, or you're, you're, if you're the person who commutes for work, you know, on your flight back and there's yet another delay with your travel and what do you reflect on? What do you think about? Or maybe at the end of a tough week when your head finally hits the pillow and you close your eyes and you're trying to kind of decompress and your mind is going a million miles an hour. And maybe in those quiet moments when you're near the end of a week, a day, a task, a job, a project, a season, you start to think, man, what am I doing? Maybe on the weaker moments, maybe on the lower moments, you start to ask yourself, am I going to make it? Is this going to work out? You know, will this, will this really matter? Maybe at the core of it, we might say, is a question like, will I make it? <laughs> am I going to last? Jesus, is, our, is my faith Strong enough? I don't feel very strong. Maybe a different question. Maybe not will I make it, but maybe will I matter? Jesus, what I'm doing here, what I'm trying to do with my life, with my, you know, will I matter? Uh, and sometimes it's hard in those moments of quiet reflection when things finally settle down. It's hard to find the words to pray. We know we're sort of supposed to, yeah, it's good to pray at the beginning of your day. It's good to pray, you know, at the end of the day. But sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to know, to say, Lord, I don't really know what to say. Because the truth is, there's, there's some angst deeper inside that I don't know how to give voice to. And I'm, I'm worried. I'm concerned. I'm, I'm unsure. I'm uncertain. And I wonder about these disciples of Jesus, because they've walked with him, but they haven't you know, it's not like they were part of the, the, the next big thing. I mean, the, a lot of where the action was for Jesus was not in cities. It was on the countryside. And so you have to wonder if these followers of Jesus who've left their jobs and left their previous careers, so to speak, to follow this rabbi. And now this rabbi is saying, by the way, I'm leaving. 
I'm going up to my father, and they're saying, we don't really know what you're talking about. We're not sure if your work is done, but we're kind of confused. Because you're going, and, and has this been for nothing? Does this even matter? And you've got to wonder if these, these guys are, are thinking to themselves, Jesus, are we going to make it? What's going to happen when you go? We don't know what to do. And, and maybe they're, they're saying, not just am I going to make it, but they're saying, Lord, do, I, do we even matter? We haven't been at the heart of where the action is. I mean, what, what do we? And an amazing thing happens in John 17. After all of these words of Jesus talking to his disciples and teaching them and giving them last instructions, last conversations, final words of encouragement, Jesus does the ultimate thing. He begins to pray for them. And you imagine he was praying for them, perhaps in front of them, because someone's writing this down or remembering it. Verse 9, John 17, I am praying for them, and I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Isn't this amazing? I mean, it almost sounds harsh, right? I'm not praying for the world. Whoa, Jesus is so unloving. He's saying, listen, there's all of that. But there are these people that you've entrusted to me, Father, and I'm praying for them. I say to you this morning, church, that Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. Now think about that. That is the whole reflection this morning. The whole thing that we're going to think about for the next 20 minutes or so, that Jesus is praying for you. Now, I have a lot of people from time to time that will come up and say, oh, Glenn, we just want you to know we're praying for you. And that means so much to me. People say, we're praying for you. We're praying for your wife. We're praying for your kids. We're praying for you all. I love that. It means so much to me. But imagine if we could be aware that Jesus himself is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you today. Jesus is talking to the Father about you. He's talking to the Father about your life, about everything that's going. He's talking to the Father about you. What's he praying for? Would you like to know? What's Jesus praying for? Maybe this passage here is a little window into that. So Jesus is praying for his disciples. What are the things he's asking the Father for? When you comb through John 17, there's several themes But it it, it appears to me, as the way I'm reading it, that there's really three requests, three specific things he's asking the Father to do for his disciples. And the first is this. Jesus is praying that the Father would keep us. John 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. and, And they have kept your word. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in the revelation of who you are. That's what that phrase can be understood as. Keep them in your name. Keep them in the revelation of your character and nature. Keep them in that. Don't let them stray and think that you're some other kind of God or like these other pagan visions of God. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And while I was with them, I kept them in your name. This is Jesus saying, while, I, while you entrusted them to me, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost 
except the son of destruction. Possibly a reference here to Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled. And then skip down to verse 15. But I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now think about that. Jesus isn't saying, hey, hey, Father, these are, these are the ones that you've entrusted to me. Would you just kind of get them out of here as soon as you can? Would you please let them leave? Let it, I mean, I'm, I'm coming to you, so would you let them come to you soon? He doesn't say that. In fact, he specifically says, I'm not praying that you'll take them out of the world. I'm praying that you deliver them from the evil one who's at work in the world, but I'm praying that you keep them. Keep them. You know, it's interesting, sometimes Christians, when we say Maranatha, we say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly Lord Jesus. What we have in mind is, come on Jesus and get me the heck out of here. I'm so sick of this. Just get me out of here. Come, Lord Jesus, come. But do you know the saints in Revelation have a different angle when they're saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. They're saying, come on and bring the full force of your reign to bear upon the world. Come and let your kingdom arrive on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, that sounds familiar. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is is in heaven. It's not saying, come on, Jesus, and Get your kids out of here. Airlift us. (laughs) It's saying, now Jesus, come on and let your reign manifest in fullness so that everything that is broken will be put back together again so that the world itself will be made new again. Come on, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, now, Father, they're in the world. Keep them even as they're here. Preserve them. This Greek word here is a word that John uses more than any other New Testament writer. He's got a few of these words that John just uses. And keep is one of them. Tereo. Preserve. It has the idea of reserving and preserving. It's very interesting, you know. You think about something that you're saving for a special occasion. Maybe a, maybe a, a particular bottle of wine or, or, or you're just you're reserving I'm sorry that's saved for we're going to do this when we have Christmas together I'm reserving this but then also preserving you're protecting it guarding it making sure nothing is damaged you know what's interesting John uses this word in his gospel I've already said this a number of times right but the first time he uses this word is in the context of the story of Jesus at the wedding of Cana now, what happened in that story? You remember the story. Jesus hasn't done a miracle yet. They run out of wine <gasps> at the wedding. And the mother of our Lord says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And he says, woman, don't trouble me with these things. It's not my time. And then she looks at the servants, wink, wink, and says, whatever he tells you to do, make sure you do it. And Jesus is like, yeah, I suppose no wine at a wedding is kind of a problem. So let's do this. Go ahead and fill up those jars with water. And then it turns into wine, right? And they bring it out, and what do they say? They say, this is amazing. Most people give their good stuff first, and then when everybody's had too much to drink, they bring out the cheap stuff. You know, like that article that came out recently about all the cheap wine that has arsenic in it. Egads. And they're saying, normally people bring out the cheap stuff at the end, but you, and here's the word, You have kept, you have kept the choice wine for the end. Now think of this. 
I wonder if there's a little association we might do here. That with Jesus, the end is always better than the beginning. See, our culture, everything about our world says, look, you better get it while you can. You better have the most fun now. You better enjoy it, make the most money, take the most vacations. Because this is all there is. This life is all there is. This kind of pleasure is all there is. So just enjoy it because at some point it's going to be all downhill. And Jesus announces at a wedding. The pinnacle moment in the, in the ancient world of sort of this representation of human happiness. And Jesus says, let me show you something. You think what's good right now? The end is even better. You think it's bad now? The feast is coming. See, with Jesus, the end is always better than the beginning. What's coming is always better than what is. And you, you wonder if when he's praying, Father, keep them, preserve them, help them make it to the very end till they stand at the last day with all the saints and feast in your kingdom and say, glory to God, this is better than anything we could have imagined. For all the martyrs who suffer, for all the Christians who, who persevere in their faith. This is Jesus saying, Father, you hold them. You hang on to them. You guard them. Guard them through opposition. Guard them through their martyrdom. Guard them. Preserve them till the end. And the great feast is coming. Jesus is talking to the Father about you and he's asking the Father to keep you, to preserve you, to guard you, to make you you last. But he's also praying that the Father would set you apart. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, I don't know if you grew up in a Christian background, you probably heard the word sanctify or sanctification a lot. And in this case, it's probably better if you didn't grow up in the church world. Because sometimes you say the word sanctification to someone who's been around church or been around religion, and what do you think of? You think about rules. You think about, oh, sanctification. No dancing, no playing cards. Just, I'm working on my sanctification. You know, it's really fun when you reread, you know, Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn, those books, you know, it's like, you know, someone's praying for his sanctification, he's saying, no thanks, it doesn't sound very fun. (laughs) You know? (laughs) <laughs> and I think that's our churchy association. Oh, sanctification, Grr, rules, unpleasantness, just a whole bunch of no's. No, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't, right, right, right. But it's interesting that Jesus says, Father, sanctify them. And then the very next line is about sending them. As you have sent me, so I have sent them. Friends, sanctification has everything to do with purpose and mission. It's not an arbitrary holiness thing. It's not just made up rules that we're somehow supposed to go, oh yeah, I gotta follow this just to, you know, sanctification. Actually, at the core, the word sanctify means to set apart, to mark, to set apart. But see, you're set apart so that you can be sent. You're set apart so that you can be sent. You're not set apart just to like, oh yeah, I'm different. I'm better. Aren't we Christians superior to the world? No. You're set apart from the world so that you can be sent back into the world. Every Sunday, 
we gather, we are, remember how we are set apart, and then we are sent back into the world. There's this prayer we pray at the communion table. We stretch our hands and we say, Lord, sanctify the, the bread and the cup. But then we also say, Lord, and sanctify us also, that we might, what are the words, that we might serve you in unity and constancy and in peace. And at the last day, join with all your saints at your eternal kingdom. Look, what's the point? The point is, you can't understand sanctification apart from mission. You can't understand why God is setting you apart, why he wants you to be different, if you don't really catch that he's sending you. Sending you. You know, a number of different um, people who sort of scholars, researchers, who comment on our culture and the changes, particularly in America, and talk about a, a failure to have a sense of transcendent purpose. And so what's, what we're left with is purely just physical. Physical pain or physical pleasure. And we have no way of navigating beyond that. So all of our decisions as a culture, go through the lens of, ooh, pain, bad, ooh, pleasure, good. And our whole MO for working through life is, what can I do to minimize the pain and maximize the pleasure, right? But you know, it wasn't always that way. There used to be a time where humans, even as a society, would say, there is a prize, there is a purpose, there is something beyond, something worthy of you saying, I can endure the pain and I can delay the pleasure for the sake of the prize. There was a sense of that. There was a sense of kind of a, the pursuit of glory is what the Greeks would talk about. This idea of saying, okay, there's something higher up and so we can, we can deal with this and we can deal with this because there's something higher. Actually, you see this in our day. One of the few places you see it is with athletes. You see athletes saying, I, I'm going to endure this pain and forsake this pleasure most of the time for the sake of this prize. Now, I don't know if you're doing a March Madness bracket. I am. I'm doing all right. Could have done better if Baylor would have won. Could have done better if Villanova hadn't have lost. <laughs> but you think about these guys. There's lots of fans in the arena. Lots of people who, you, who can play pickup ball. Lots of people who can, you know, weekend warriors show up at the gym and drain their jumper. But there's only a few people who put on the jersey. There's only a few people who've been set apart to wear the jersey. And when they wear that jersey and it says Duke, who I've picked to win it all, based on some theologians there, (laughs) totally smart. When they put on the jersey that says Duke, they've been set apart. They're not the person in the stands. They're not the other person who's like, yeah, I used to play a lot of ball myself. Right, but you're not set apart. They've been set apart. They wear a name. And then they've been sent to go win. And they endure pain and forsake pleasure for the sake of a prize. One shining moment. That's what they want. Listen, I think that's the paradigm Jesus is talking to the Father about when he's talking about you. Set them apart. Put the jersey on them. 
Make them no longer bystanders or an audience that was watching me do miracles. And you wonder for Jesus' ministries if the disciples were like, bravo, Jesus. Bravo. And he's saying, come on, come on, come on down, come on down. You're not in the stands anymore. Father, give them a jersey. Set them apart. Mark them with your name. And send them into the world. Can I say something? I think some of our ways of thinking about the challenge or the, you know, being called up, some of the way we think about it is very juvenile. And so we focus on rules versus freedom. And so every time we think of, of, of anything that the Bible might be challenging us to be or, or do, we say, hey, brother, that's legalism, man. Whoa, dude, ease up on the legalism. I'm free. Jesus loves me. And are you trying to say if I don't read my Bible, he loves me less? And we got to go back to set square one again. No, he loves you the same no matter what you do, no matter how you perform. His love for you is not, okay, okay, well then ease up on this stuff, man. And it's like, this is elementary, you guys. This is elementary. God's love for you doesn't change regardless of your performance. But he has set you apart for a purpose. Will you rise to it? Will you let him let you rise? Do you see what I'm saying? Those athletes, when they're given the scholarship and they're given the jersey and they're set apart, they don't say, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I want to work out. I don't know if I want to put in the hours. I don't know if I want to work on the shot. There's probably days when they don't want to. But guess why they do it anyway? Because they recognize they've been set apart for a purpose. That's the same with you and I. If we force everything through the lens of freedom versus rules or acceptance and rejection, those are very juvenile, immature ways of thinking of the Christian life. I know that. Can I speak that frankly to you? You will never grow up in Christ if everything's like, whoa, man, legalism, performance. I get it. Those are real dangers. But once we've established the foundation of God's love for you, guess what you can grow up into? You can say, he set me apart. He sent me into the world. And when you wake up Monday morning and go to the business that you manage, or go to the class that you are, the school that you're taking classes, you can say, Jesus has sent me into the world today. Jesus has, the Father has set me apart, and Jesus has sent me into, imagine if you lived your life like that. Imagine if you said, you know what, I'm getting up this morning, because Jesus has sent me. I'm, 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 I'm getting up to teach the kids or care for our children. I'm getting up to get in my car because the Father has put... i got a jersey, man. And it says His name on it. And I've been sent into the game. Isn't that awesome? Come on, live that way. What if we live that way? That's what Jesus is talking to the Father about. And finally, Jesus is praying that we would be one. That we would be one. Now, Christian unity is sometimes a tricky thing. And sometimes we say, well, I, I don't know. How, how could we possibly be one? There's so many different denominations and churches. And... Listen to what Jesus says. I do not ask for these only, but for also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's talking about us. We're the ones, many, 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 many generations be- removed from the very first ones who believed because of the apostles' words. You know, the only reason we have faith is not because you made it up. This is sometimes the danger of the 
personal faith. I get personal faith, but sometimes you start to imagine that you came up with this for yourself. And so we have this very unique 21st century Western crisis of faith. Very unique because we somehow believe that we've got to validate and verify whatever we believe in. So you'll hear someone say, well, I'm just kind of searching things out. I'm trying to figure out what I believe. That is the epitome of arrogance. That we can somehow stand above all the world and say, I like that. I'm not sure I agree with that. I'll take that. I'll take this. The Christian faith has been passed on to you. It's not something you say, well, I discovered that. I think I believe that. I'm a seeker that kind of chooses this. The radical call to faith is not a call to see what you can believe. The radical call to faith is to receive what is being handed down to you. That confronts my generation. That confronts young people. Because we somehow imagine that like, I'll decide what I believe is true. Paul says, that which I have received, I also pass on to you. Paul says it. So in a sense, all of us are believing because it's been passed on. We're steward of this faith. I don't make it up. We're steward of it. And so Jesus says, look, for all those who believe because of their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus draws a parallel between the church's unity, the Christian unity, and the unity that is in the Trinity. You're like, great. Talk about something I don't understand. Right. None of us understand the Trinity. But it's a mystery that we confess. Why? Because it's a picture for us about how relational unity is supposed to work. Think about the Trinity. Does the Father stop being the Father because He's one with the Son and the Spirit? No. Does Jesus stop being Jesus because He's one with the Father? No, 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 right. Unity is not uniformity in the Trinity. They don't all become the same person. The Trinity is not the same person doing three different functions. That's modalism. There's a great YouTube video on this. <laughs> I'll have to post it on Facebook after today. All the different heresies of the Trinity done in really comedic fashion. That's modalism. We don't believe it's one person doing three functions. We don't believe it's one person doing three roles. We believe there are three persons in one. Huh? Right. <laughs> but what does that tell us about unity? It means that there doesn't need to be uniformity. It also doesn't mean that there's a loss of personhood. It's Buddhism, by the way, that says that we become this drop that is then dissolves into the great ocean of the life force. But it's Christianity that says you, you get to still be you. Even as you are one with him and her and them and that church. And this church gets to be this church even as it is, even as it is one with that church. Wow. So well, well, <laughs> what is the unity in? Well, in the Trinity, the unity is about essence. It's about having the same nature, being in very nature. So, wait a minute, Glenn. Does every church and every believer have the same nature working in them? In one sense, yes. Paul says we are all partakers of the divine nature. Jesus says, it's my life that is at work in you. The Spirit of God is at work in the heart of every believer. That, that life of God is what connects us all. 
So in one sense, we already are one because we share in this one nature. But in another sense, we're working to become one, right? It's like I tell the premarital couples. I got four couples I've been working with this spring, preparing them for uh, marriages. and <laughs> Yeah. Um, and one of the things I say to them is, you know, on your, on your wedding day, when the pastor says, and now I pronounce you man and wife, a miracle happens. You actually become one. And I try to stress the part about how your life, as you have known it, is over. <laughs> and your life, right? You actually become one. And yet, you retain personhood. You retain who you are. And now you get to spend the rest of your married life figuring out how to become what you already are. Figuring out how to live out what you're... It's this already but not yet. We see this in theology all the time, right? Already but not yet. You are, but now you're becoming what you already are. Now you get to actually live this out. One of the things that helps us embody our unity as believers are these prayers that we say together. You know, for years, the church has been praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven. I'll never forget it. Three years ago or so, we, we took our first trip from, from um, it was New Life Sunday night before it became New Life downtown, but we took our first trip to Swaziland. And we had been praying during the Sunday night service, we'd been praying the Lord's Prayer together each week. And, and then we got to Swaziland and we're there and we're hanging out with these kids and they, there's local leaders there because this whole partnership thing is all about local leaders being uh, supported as they pour into the kids and the care points because that's a sustainable model. And we're watching these local leaders and we're helping to interact and augment a little bit of what they're doing that day. And then one of them gets up and says, all right, children, let's close in prayer. And all of a sudden, about 50 kids with one voice begin to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I look around at our team and like wiping the tears from their eyes. They're like, we pray this prayer. They're like, yeah, yeah, right. And they pray this prayer. And the saints prayed this prayer. And the martyrs prayed this prayer. And all of a sudden you're realizing, wait a minute, the Lord's Prayer, the prayer Jesus gave His disciples, doesn't have an I or a me or a my in it. It has our and us and we. And wait a minute, even in the creed, when we say it each week, it says we believe in. It's a reminder that there's a bigger story that we're joining. There's a work already in progress that we're stepping into. There's a drama that's already been unfolding that we are now taking our place on the stage. We're joining this. We're joining them. The church historic, the church world, worldwide, we believe in. Incidentally, the Nicene Creed is the only confession of faith that is affirmed in every stream of the body of Christ. Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, denominational, non-denominational. It's one of the reasons we say it. To remind us, oh yeah, that we believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Church. Boom. Maybe the most remarkable thing about all that we've said this morning is simply that Jesus is praying for us. Hebrews 7 says it this way, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. <laughs> you think? 
But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to make intercession for us. Yes, as the mediator between us and the Father. Yes, but also as the one who actually prays for you. Can I say this? All of our prayer is really participation in Jesus' prayer. All of our prayers is just, it's just participation in Jesus' prayer. You, we come on Sunday morning, we're learning when to stand and when to sit and when to say thanks be unto God and when to recite the part of the creed. It's, sometimes it feels clunky and then we sing these songs and we're doing our best and we're, we're offering prayers and we're saying things and it sometimes feels weak and sometimes fe- feels feeble or not enough. But do you know what Jesus is doing? Jesus is taking all of it and he's saying, thank you, I'll take it. And he makes them his own prayers and his own song and his own offering to the Father and the Father is glorified. Somehow our prayers have become part and participation of Jesus' prayer. And that's what makes it work. Not because your prayer is so good. Not because your prayer is so lofty. Not because you had extra faith. Or because you gave some little gift to some preacher on TV. Your prayers matter because they are participation in Jesus' prayer. You might even say prayer at its best is simply an amen to Jesus' prayer. Our prayer at its finest is really just an amen. That's why our Old Testament reading this morning was the psalmist saying, let all the people say amen. And Jude, now to him who's able to keep us from falling on and on, he goes forever and ever, amen. And the best that we do is just to say, Jesus, you're praying that we would be kept and preserved to the end. You know what I say? Amen, Lord. Jesus, you're praying that the Father would set us apart even as you send us into our jobs and schools and workplaces and into the world. And we say, God, let it be. Amen. And Jesus, you're praying that we as your church would be one so that we can be a witness to who you are. Jesus, you know what we say? Amen. Amen. What do you do with a message like this? Say amen. Amen.